All right, we've been doing a series on forgiveness. We have been looking at the definition of forgiveness. And by way of review, what we've seen is that forgiveness is not a feeling. I don't have to have a certain feeling before I forgive somebody. But it's a choice we make. It's a choice. Uh, A person who forgives may still be hurt, but chooses to treat the offender with value. To forgive gives up the right to get back. Uh, It means that you're not going to be identified by the hurt. You're not going to define the perpetrator by the offense. And the offense will not be the controlling reality of your life. So as a child of God, I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I'm made in the image of God. That is who I am. I'm not the guy that was hurt by my dad who did thus and thus. I'm not defined by that. So Christ is the source of my security and significance. I don't live in denial of what has happened but I live with it in light of my true identity in Christ. Now, we've recognized the connection between the vertical relationship with God and our willingness and ability to forgive others on earth. We receive forgiveness and love from God, and we can then do the same with others because God has transformed our own hearts. We read in 1 John, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, and and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, we talked about including justice in this equation of forgiveness, especially when abuse has taken place. Now, this is not an easy road. I'm not claiming it is, but we, we learn to distinguish justice from vengeance. It's a path that victims have to travel if they want to take this path of, of forgiveness. Now, we have to be careful, and this is something that a lot of churches have been guilty of, that we don't weaponize forgiveness in such a way that we put victims back in a pathway of harm where they've been abused, whether it's sexually or, 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 or physically. And people are just saying, well, just forgive them and go back. And that, I think, is the wrong way to approach this. We can call authorities for needed protection in cases of abuse and still walk in forgiveness. And by now, I hope we can distinguish between forgiveness and justice, and forgiveness, and reconciliation. Now, we have to choose to forgive 100% of the time. You know, we're not pursuing vengeance. But if a wife, let's say, is being beaten, and her husband claims that he's a Christian, I'm using a real-life situation here, we do not tell the wife to forgive her husband and just go back to such a situation. All right? Consequences will be incurred. 
The wife can forgive, but repentance and trust will take a long time to be established. Now, forgiveness means we want the best for the perpetrator. And what is best for the perpetrator is a chance for true repentance and facing the sin. And what is best for the victim is an environment of safety and forgiveness, all right? Now, here's a question. Is forgiveness possible in the face of a very egregious offense? Well, we looked at Luke 7 last Sunday, and we saw that Jesus forgave a prostitute. Now, there was a Pharisee in the story who was very prideful in identifying the woman by her sin and not her true worth. We saw how unbelief puts a limit on what Jesus can forgive. And there are many within the religious evangelical subculture that do the same. I mean, there are certain sins that people commit. We don't want those people in our church. Even if they you know, are working on it, repent, we just don't want them. And that, my friends, is sin. That's a Pharisee. So humility needs to take place or where if we commit a sin, we admit responsibility for that sin. And then we saw the process in this passage also of priority of recognizing forgiveness from God so that our hearts can forgive others. So we have to be careful not to confuse our need of forgiveness only if the perpetrator fully repents, right? Again, I can forgive 100% of the time and should forgive 100% of the time. Putting limits on forgiveness is a dangerous business for the health of our own heart, and we'll see here shortly also in terms of our relationship to God. Holocaust survivor Eli Wiesel was asked if he forgave the Nazis. He said, who am I to forgive? I'm not God. No. I cannot forgive. Now, if forgiveness means that I have to immediately trust again, Wiesel is right. If, if forgiveness means I have to instantly welcome Nazis in my home, then I think Wiesel would again be right. But I submit to you, that's not forgiveness. It's sad, I think, that so many believers, people in the church, hold grudges. Now, this is different than boundaries, but I'm talking about grudges for a, a past offense. It could be with a spouse, it can be with children, friends, Christians. And then they turn around and talk about, you know, Jesus, freedom in Christ, blah, blah, blah. And they do that with a straight face while they're holding grudges. Maybe the issue is this vertical relationship. Maybe the issue is first understanding that God has forgiven us. And who are we to not forgive others? So we have to forgive ourselves. When Shannon Etheridge was 16 years old, 
an act of forgiveness and love changed her life. When she was in high school, she was driving to school. She ran into a woman who was on a bike, and the woman was killed. All right? Um, this woman died, and Etheridge, who was found completely at fault by authorities, was consumed with intense guilt. She contemplated suicide more than once. And she was looking to be healed somehow, some way. The woman's husband, named Gary, forgave the 16-year-old. He forgave her. He asked the attorney to drop all charges because he could see that she was miserable, that she was wanting some kind of, of, of freedom. So he saved her from a guilty verdict. Instead, he asked Etheridge to continue in the godly footsteps that his wife was walking before she was killed. And he said, you can't let this ruin your life. He said this to Shannon Etheridge. In fact, I am passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. And Gary's act of forgiveness showed Etheridge the amazing love of God. And today, Etheridge is a best-selling author of Every Girl's Battle, Every Woman's Battle. And a recent book, completely his, Loving Jesus Without Limits, helps women overcome guilt-ridden, wounded lives. And it started with accepting God's forgiveness for her and forgiving herself. Now listen, there are some Christians who still live shame-filled lives, who are not receiving the forgiveness of God. Now, they know it theologically, they read it in the scripture, but, you know, it's not real. You know, when I say forgiveness is more than a feeling, and it's not a feeling, it's a choice, I mean that. But that doesn't mean deny our feelings. So if we're, if we're always red, hot, angry, that's a problem, that needs to be addressed. And if we're always, always shame-filled, that's a problem, we need to truly understand and receive forgiveness. So when the oil light's on, you don't ignore it. But that's not the real issue, right? In the year 1829, a Philadelphia man by the name of George Wilson committed a robbery and then he killed somebody in the process. He was arrested, went to trial, found guilty, sentenced to be hanged. Some friends intervened on his behalf and they were finally able to obtain a pardon from President Andrew Jackson. But when Wilson was informed of this, he refused to accept the pardon. And the sheriff was unwilling to enact the sentence for how could he hang a pardoned man. So an appeal was sent to Jackson. Jackson went to the Supreme Court and they decided the case Justice Marshall ruled that a pardon was a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon the acceptance by the person 
implicated. Now, who could imagine a guy saying, no, I don't want to be pardoned, but he did. And guess what? He hanged. That's amazing to me. And here was that pardon laying on the sheriff's desk, and George Wilson was executed. Listen, in the big picture, we don't want to reject the ultimate pardon in refusing salvation. We want to receive the forgiveness of God and acknowledging that God has forgiveness of our sin. But there's also a cleansing of forgiveness, a daily cleansing that restores our fellowship and restores our peace that I think many Christians struggle with this because they are guilt-ridden. So the appeal is to accept forgiveness from God and forgive ourselves. I, I think some Christians feel like they just need to kind of, you know, hurt themselves, punish themselves. But you know what that says when you do that to yourself? You're saying the sacrifice of Christ was not enough. You're saying Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient for you. I don't think you want to say that. And so we get this forgiveness from God. We, give, uh, we forgive ourselves so that there are no impediments then in forgiving others. So in wrapping up this series on forgiveness, I want us to look at a problem passage that I think has baffled many Christians. And it's Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Say what? So does that mean that God will not forgive us? He will unpardon the pardon if we refuse to forgive others? Well, let's do a little investigation of this. Let me suggest to you that there are two expressions of forgiveness. One is a forgiveness that ultimately and secures our forgiveness from God, our pardon from God. This is the kind of forgiveness that Christians receive at salvation. This is why in Mark 2.10, um, after Jesus healed the paralyzed man, he said he did so so that people would see that he had authority, Jesus did, to forgive sins. And such sins like that are what Ephesians 1.7 talks about. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to our church going? According to be a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an AG? Is that what it says? No. According to the riches of his grace. It's a gift given to us freely. We did not deserve it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So no man has the power to forgive sins in that sense. 
but only God can declare us righteous before him. And Romans 3.24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, this kind of forgiveness guarantees our acceptance before God. Now, these aren't biblical terms here that I'm about to use, but I think it helps to understand this notion. There's acceptance before God that is secured through Christ and his sacrifice, and then there's approval from God that um, means that sometimes God doesn't approve of all of our actions, even though we're always accepted. So I have my children, four children, so they're accepted as my children, they'll always be my children, but I don't always approve of every action of my children, particularly when they were growing up, right? And you'd have to address that. So there's a difference between acceptance and approval. And the kind of forgiveness that Romans talks about guarantees our acceptance before God. It never changes. Why? Because it's secured by Christ. And it's not based on our performance. Correct? So, listen, any halfway decent parent never disowns their child. Janet and I would, would always kind of rehearse just between her and I, what would happen if one of our kids did this? What would happen if our daughter came home and told us this? Fill in the blanks. We wanted to prepare ourselves as good as we wanted to parent, but we thought, you know, we don't have control of everything. How are we going to react? We always want to communicate that there is unconditional love for our kids, all right? But even though there might be actions that you're hurt by, even though your heart may be broken by some of those actions, a parent will always accept a child as part of the family. God is the perfect parent, right? But look at Hebrews, where God disciplines his children. So he's the perfect parent and accepts us, but he doesn't always approve of everything we do. Right? That is the other application of forgiveness as it relates to the quality of relationship that we enjoy with God or others. This is not the justified part of forgiveness that we talked about in Romans, this once and for all kind of forgiveness. Instead, this relates to how close you are to God, your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God. It relates to our fellowship, not the relationship or this connection of God is my father and I'm his son, okay? Now, in this second expression of forgiveness, it enjoys God's approval. It enjoys the blessings of being close to him and intimate with him. But that can be hampered, right? What hampers that? Sin hampers our fellowship. Sin impedes our intimacy with God. And I think this is what Matthew 6 is talking about. We see this expressed in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, John is writing to Christians, right? 
And the context of 1 John 1 is the restoration of fellowship, not entering into heaven, not being saved from hell. Right? We cannot say we have fellowship with God and, in, and then continue in sin. All right? I can't say that I'm close with my wife and then, you know, call her some nasty name or, or mistreat her. The fellowship is broken. She's still my wife, but there's got to be an, an exchange. There's got to be forgiveness for the relationship to be restored, even though the position is the same. It's not too different with God, right? A Christian is not acting in accordance with his standing in Christ when he sins. And the Lord referred to this second kind, this fellowship kind of forgiveness, when he said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. John 13, 8. And Peter told the Lord to wash him all over if that was the case. And Jesus replied, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. The idea is, is that Peter needs forgiveness related to restoration of fellowship. He was to, he was to draw close to Christ in fellowship and particularly the fellowship of his sufferings because Christ was just now getting ready to be crucified. I want you to be close to me, Peter. But he's already been a man who's been forgiven of his sins in terms of his standing before God. He's had the bath. But he needs a daily cleansing. He needs to draw near to God daily. So the point of Matthew 6 is that we cannot walk in fellowship with God if we refuse to forgive others. Notice the context of Matthew 6. If you read before this, it's the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is a loving expression of our fellowship with God. And Matthew is including this lesson on forgiveness as another expression of our fellowship with God. When we refuse to forgive others, our fellowship with God is obstructed. When our fellowship with God is real, our forgiveness for others will be genuine and freely given. And so here we see this authentic prayer and forgiveness of others are clear expressions that, you know, me and God are okay. So forgiving others is not a prerequisite for forgiveness from God, for redemption, but it is to keep our fellowship with God our intimate relationship with God. We can't go around constantly disobedient to God and expect that the relationship is close. That's just not the way it works. I can't expect my wife to just, you know, uh, hey, Kevin, let's hold hands. What was that name you just called me five seconds ago? Or why did you not forgive me? Or why did you not do what I ask? Or, you know, it could be a 15 other things, and then you act like everything is hunky-dory. And yet we have Christians walking around who clearly are disobedient to the Lord and not forgiving and multitude of other things and still claim, hey, me and God are like this. And that's deception. Remember what Peter wrote to husbands? Okay, you mistreat your wife, you don't honor your wife. What does it hinder? Your prayers. 
your relationship with God. Okay? So listen, maybe there's a lot of us that, you know, we got to really come to Jesus. Okay? we got to really take that invitation in Revelation seriously where he says, come and sup with me. I want you to have dinner with me. It's, a, it's an invitation for intimacy. Open the door. That's intimacy. That's not salvation. This is, I want you to have a close relationship. And there are many that aren't having that relationship because they're still wallowing in sin. So, you know, this idea that, yeah, you Christians just think you can get away with sin, that God forgives you. No, I'm not saying that at all. Saying that God deals with us. And one of the ways he deals with us is this fellowship with him. So, you can't act like you are close with God and not forgive, mistreat your wife, um, and a myriad of other things. We can't refuse to forgive. So, let's move on from this. Um, actually, you know what? There's one other passage I think I'll... We've got, well, we've got a few minutes. You'll hang with me. You won't leave, will you? All right. Um, you know, you look, at, you look at Psalm 32. It's the confession of David. And by the way, I want to remind you, what were the sins of David? Just, you know, murder and adultery, okay? I don't know about you, but that would be kind of high up on my list, all right? Right? Um, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in his spirit there is no deceit. Now, David is writing this. So, man, I mean, when you know you're forgiven, that's cool. For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away. My body felt this lack of confession, not coming face to face with my sin. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. My strength had dried up, as by the fever heat of summer. I mean, you talk about the motivation for life being drained, commit murder and adultery and try to cover it up, okay? <laughs> really, you know, you're no longer Tony Robbins. You're more like just hiding from people, all right? Um, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to, to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So what he's saying is, just imagine, think about this for a second, that I was so engulfed in my sin, locked in my own little cage without confessing, and then when I did confess, and I came face to face with, with this, you forgave my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time um, when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters... They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. There's great joy that is returned. Before, I felt this heaviness, and now there's great joy. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but do not be like a horse or mule without understanding, which may be curbed with bit and bridle. So what is he saying? That in fellowship, I want us to be so intimate in my relationship with God that all God has to do is give you a glance with his eye and you get the message. 
that you're so close with God that he just has to whisper and you know what the deal is. But don't be like a horse that when the rein is pulled and the bit grabs its mouth, what does it do? It causes pain. But that's like how we are in unconfessed sin. We hold on to it instead of just being transparent before the Lord because our fellowship with him necessitates that we deal with our stuff daily and we're honest before him. Listen, if you are a godly, walking with God Christian, you know what you do a lot? You do a lot of confession. (laughs) Why? Because we live with the flesh, okay? You may get tired of it, and that just makes me ache for heaven, all right? Here's some practical helps in how to forgive. So I want us to just um, move in a direction of capping this off with just some specific ways that we can apply this. First, define forgiveness correctly. To forgive means to, again, renounce revenge, be open to reconciliation. Revenge is not satisfied by another person's unhappiness. Forgiveness sees the perpetrator as valuable and made in the image of God, all right? So define forgiveness correctly. Next, humble yourself as a needy recipient of forgiveness from God. Leonardo da Vinci was one of the outstanding intellects and artists of all time. And before he commenced his work on The Last Supper, he had a violent quarrel with a fellow painter. And so enraged and bitter was da Vinci that he determined to paint the face of his enemy into the face of Judas for revenge in the picture. Now that's a pretty good, I'm gonna get you right there, all right? But when he tried painting the face of Jesus, there was a mental block. And it wasn't until he realized his frustration was his own heart and unforgiveness that this prohibited him from seeing the face of Jesus clearly. You cannot have an imprint of Jesus on your heart and hold to unforgiveness. Now, my friends, this may take some time, okay, between you and God to move away the layers of denial and, and uh, um, you know, the excuses, the obfuscation to get to the truth. The truth is, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Underline that word, fellowship. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So see, that's my favorite verse for Janet when we get in a little tit. If we say we have no sin. No, it's not. That's for me. So, 
Humble yourself as a needy recipient of forgiveness. Next, accurately name the offense. We gain nothing by minimizing the offense of someone else by saying, you know, it's no big deal. You gotta say more than that, okay? That doesn't help the offender or us. The offender needs to face the reality of their sin, okay? When you are confessing your sin to somebody, let me encourage you to name it, okay? Don't, don't say this, you know what? I'm really sorry that I hurt you. <laughs> you know what that does? That makes the person offended the problem for being a snowflake, okay? And I don't think that's the message you want, all right? Instead, take responsibility. Say something like, you know, I was wrong to judge you harshly. I was wrong to slander you. And you must know, therefore, what the forgiveness is being applied to, okay? Next, acknowledge that every offense involves at least two people who are familiar with sin. So whether you're the offended or you're the perpetrator, all of us have a lot of experience in sin, right? So I can't get this feeling of superiority over somebody else like, I don't have any sin. I mean, why is it that when, you know, we sin ourselves, okay, we often make excuses maybe give reasons to diminish the sin, try to justify it. And, and then we'll talk about how, you know, that's not what I meant. You know, our, my motive was pure. I didn't mean to. But then when a person offends us, okay, we use that sin against them. You lie and cheat, you, okay? We start naming it off, but we don't do that for ourselves. We do this because we are naturally, fleshly, quick to see sin in others, and slow to see sin in ourselves. That's just part of being in this earth suit. Jesus said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? We are quick to identify the offender with their sin and to identify ourselves by our good motives when we sin. And this is what Jesus meant for us to avoid. Don't see yourself as superior to the offender. Next, use the words, I forgive you, to release the offender. Okay? You are releasing the offender from your own personal hit list. You are releasing the offender from your own vengeance. You are releasing the offender from being defined by you through the guilt of his or her sin. Don't just say it's no big deal. Don't just say forget about it, but say, I forgive you. That way you're acknowledging the wrong done and the real wrong released. Next, pray whenever possible, work toward reconciliation of the relationship that was broken by the offense. When you genuinely pray for the person who has offended you, it's amazing how this positions your heart. Now, sometimes this takes time. Maybe your initial prayer for somebody who's offended you is, Lord, I pray that your vengeance will rain down on so-and-so 
But given time, okay, as you continue to pray, maybe then it moves to, Lord, I pray that you'll bless so-and-so. I pray that they'll see your goodness. It's amazing when I consistently pray for those who have hurt me, how that helps to change the trajectory of my heart. It's positioned away from bitterness. Restoration of the relationship is the ultimate goal, not just forgiveness. Forgiveness is a step, all right? If you say, I forgive you, and then you shut the person out, you don't talk about the issue, you give them the the silent treatment, you refuse to have the hard conversations to resolve the issue, that's not going far enough. That's half-hearted forgiveness. Now, I get that restoration is not always possible. We've talked about this already. Some people don't repent. Some, some, another party may not be interested. I get this. But more times than not, I think we have to admit this, it is possible. When someone breaks the ice, right? They're willing to lovingly confront the issue. One thing we know for sure We cannot lovingly reconcile when we are taking to an account a wrong suffered. And that's how we're identifying the person. We hold it against the person. Again, I get it that sometimes restoration is hindered because somebody's not truly repentant. But the ultimate goal is not just forgiveness, but restoration. Paul wrote, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, okay? Listen, there are some whose families need to be reconciled, that there is bitterness that has run through for a long time, and you know it, and you refuse to deal with it. Why? Because you just don't want to pay the price. So everybody's going to have a Thanksgiving dinner where they're not really talking about the issue. There's an elephant in the room, and nobody wants to talk about it, okay? I mean, Thanksgiving suck when that happens, right? And they don't have to. Acts 11.18 speaks of a repentance that leads to life. The inference here is there, there's a repentance that's not complete. And in 2 Corinthians 17, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a repentance that is life-giving, that is not shame-inducing, And then there's a guilt that keeps you in prison where there's no real repentance and you just kind of wallow in it like a pig in mud. And it's unnecessary. Take the pardon. Realize you're forgiven. Forgive others. The fact is, is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all citizens of heaven. And Ephesians 2.19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're living in the same house. Let's act like it. Let's forgive. Kaya, from where the crawdad sings, says to herself, why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? Fair question. 
the case has been made these last several weeks is that the reason we forgive is because it brings peace with yourself. It helps us to be reconciled with God and it also restores relationships with others. Let's pray.